Thank you for that offertory piece that we neglected to sing earlier. Thank you. Thank you. Very good. Very good. I'd like you to turn with me to uh, Psalm uh, 110. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion uh, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be, uh, uh, will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole earth. He will drink from the brook uh, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Lord, give us in these moments this evening um, wisdom and refreshment in the beauty of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In this brief psalm, we have compressed some of the greatest theology found in the entire Old Testament. Uh, verses 1 through 3 speak of Jesus as the, as the reigning, seated king during his heavenly session upon high. We, we read that, uh, that he is seated at the right hand of God. That Yahweh's scepter, the scepter of Almighty God, is now in the hands of this Messiah. And the troops are joyful. They are clothed in dazzling robes and they will follow him into battle. This is a buoyant scene of Christ reigning on high in Old Testament language. There's a sharp departure in verse 4, the center of the psalm. We move from a reference to the Messiah King to the Messiah Priest. Uh, the Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. Um, you are a, a king who is also a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then verses 5 through 7, returning to the, to the worship of the king, the returning king now, the one who will come in wrath, the one who will shatter all his foes, the one who will come to judge the whole earth. And so far, as we consider these grand themes in this psalm, it is like so many other royal psalms, but only here, only here in the Psalter, King David himself identifies the coming Messiah and worships him. The synoptic Gospels, all three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all pick up on the fact that, uh, that uh, this is a unique psalm. It is the most quoted of the psalms, and it applies very particularly to Christ uh, as he is, coron uh, as he is cor coronated and as he is, uh, as he is heading uh, to Calvary for the priestly work that he will do there. The, the triumphal entry of Jerusalem is where, is where this theme is picked up in the Gospels. 
um, the son of David is said to be coming into the city, and there was much joy and much re- refreshment and, and, and worship and glory, and, and the, the glory days were returning. There was much optimism. At the same time, however, the Pharisees were active, and they were seeking to trick Jesus up, to trip him up and trick him. And, and Jesus uh, engages them, and he throws in a huge, lofting softball to get the, the conversation started. And he says this, whose son is the Messiah? And they are thinking, easy, easy, peasy, it's King David. Everyone knows that. And that's when Jesus introduces Psalm 110 into the conversation. And he says, well, listen to this. Yahweh, the covenant God, says to my Lord, that would be a different being, um, sit at my right hand. And so the Lord, Yahweh, is saying to another Lord, whom David identifies as my Lord, and Jesus is basically saying, how can that be? And they are, they are flummoxed. They are, are just confused. Because a son could not be superior to his father. They were stumped. To the Jewish mind, it simply didn't work that way. And that opens up the New Testament treatment of the themes and the, and the words of, of Psalm 110. The apostles will begin to untie that knot. And the theme then throughout the Old Testament, as, as the theme throughout the New Testament, as these phrases and verses from Psalm 110 are unfolded, is that is the uniqueness and the superiority of Jesus. And that's what we want to look at tonight. Using Psalm 110 as the, as the framework to see the uniqueness and the significance and the superiority of the Messiah. Several things we want to point out about that. First of all, this one would be raised from the dead. Peter uses the phrases from Psalm 110 in that great Pentecost sermon. He describes God raising Jesus from the dead, and he says, we saw him, we were witnesses. And then they say that he was exalted, raised to the right hand of the Father. And then right at the end of the psalm, in the climax of of the sermon, he says, and he will sit at my right hand. He will be exalted. He will have all power and authority until I make uh, my enemies, Yahweh says, your footstool. So here's the dilemma that the first century church had to wrestle with. David's son... Uh, was the Messiah, David's Lord, and he was utterly unique. And what's fascinating is that in Psalm 110, the seed of, of a mature doctrine of Christ would already be, be, be obscured, be hidden. It draws out the teachings of the two natures of Christ deep in the Psalter in Psalm 110. He was the son of David. He was the son of David, but he was also of this mysterious priesthood of Melchizedek, and he was one who would be raised from the dead. All of this is, is, is enfolded and, and describing the two natures of Christ far before his birth even would take place. The second thing we learn and we appreciate about, about the descriptions of Jesus as both king and priest is how utterly unique it is in the Old Testament. 
Verse 4 again. The Lord has sworn, he'll not change his mind. You are a priest, not only the sitting king, not only the coming, the returning king, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That would have exploded in the minds of those first, uh, those first uh, Hebrew hearers. Because you did not have a blending of the office of king and priest. One king tried. Uzziah tried. And he got, for his efforts, a case of leprosy. You just didn't do that. And yet Jesus the Messiah, who is the only one who is both king and priest, consider it the authority and the effectiveness of Jesus, who is the priest, but is also the king. I would like you to, to flip over to uh, Hebrews chapters 5 through 7 for a moment. We want to spend a little bit more time here, uh, because it's in these, uh, in these chapters uh, that the shadowy figure of Melchizedek uh, is uh, is brought uh, to light, is, is dusted off from the Old Testament pages and then applied to Jesus. And the great question is, who is he? How is this a picture of Christ? And how does this help us understand Christ's ministry? Uh, Jesus, uh, in chapters 5 through 7, is described as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is precisely what Psalm 110 is getting at. The Lord has sworn he'll not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Well, who was Melchizedek? As I said, a shadowy figure who appears in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, he, um, his, his name says a great deal about who he was. We can find out about him. He was Melchizedek, uh, the king of, of, of righteousness. He was the king of righteousness, as the two uh, parts of his name, Melchizedek, uh, indicate. But he was also the king of Salem, and that is a description of peace. So get this, he, he is someone who appears on the pages of the, of the, New, of the Old Testament. He is described as, as king of righteousness and also king of peace. He was, as we see in Hebrews, um, he was a superior to Abraham. Why? How is that even explained? Well, Levi, a grandson of Abraham, was still in Abraham's body, as it were, and Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, the, pre the prince of Salem. So in his paying the tithe, he was recognizing uh, that uh, Melchizedek was superior to himself. You don't pay tithes to inferiors. He is identified also as the priest of the Most High, Melchizedek is. Given that name, prior uh, to the Aaronic priesthood, prior uh, to Aaron being appointed or anointed as the, the head of all priests, there is Melchizedek, who just arrives with this title, this King of Righteousness, King of Salem, and beyond that, the Prince of the Most High. So he too was Aaron's superior. Who is Melchizedek then? A superior to Abraham, a superior to Aaron, a prince of peace, a prince of righteousness, king of righteousness, and and this uh, this um, this this priest of the Most High. 
Well, how is this then a picture of Christ? Um, Melchizedek is described in, in, in Hebrews as one who did not have a beginning of days or an end of life. That's how he's described. He's this shadowy figure that just shows up on the pages of Genesis, and this is what we know about him. This is what is poetically done uh, to describe the life and, and the ministry of Melchizedek. Neither beginning of days or end of life. Obviously, this is poetic. He had a mother and father, and he died, but the scripture doesn't indicate. And so he is described, while there's no record of parents, no record of death, he is described as, as he is a picture of Christ who is our priest, who is described as the one who has a power of an indestructible life. Chapter 7, verse 16. Uh, Melchizedek, then, is a foreshadowing or a picture of Jesus who has the power of an indestructible life. He, too, though he died, would be raised uh, from the dead. Okay, now what do we get from this picture of Christ, who is the king-priest, the unique king-priest after the order of Melchizedek? Several things are said uh, in Hebrews about this. Uh, one is that he was a priest, therefore, that was able to save uh, to the uttermost. Save to the uttermost. He was a thoroughly effective, a completely effective high priest. He saves to the uttermost. How can you put that on? How can you put that garment on? There are times when you are convinced that, uh, well, you're just at your worst. You're, you're feeling you're not a very good Christian, not a very good representative of Jesus. You aren't obedient enough. You aren't consistent enough. Uh, and and uh, you, uh, uh, when you are at your worst, um, have a sense that the high priest must simply be ignoring you and your case. I prayed earlier that, that many in our congregation would have a, re a restoration of a sense of assurance. And this is a theme that I've been talking to a number of people about. What, feeling that sins are not, after all, forgiven. Feeling that God, after all, is not welcoming them. And, and, and feeling very much stuck because of that. Um, you... And this is my prayer for us as God's people. Would we would grasp the reality that there is more than enough mercy for you and for me, even on our worst days. He saves to the uttermost. It is a tragedy. Speaking with certain people who feel so bad about their performance that they feel they must shy away from Christ himself. As if we go to Christ for a pat on the head for being a good boy or girl. We go to be rescued. We go, we go to receive mercy. And so we have a priest after the order of Melchizedek who saves to the, the, the uttermost. 
The second thing we learn from, from Hebrews passage about this Melchizedekian king and priest is that he always lives to make intercession. People may be discouraged. You may be discouraged at times. You may be ministering to someone who is discouraged. And they feel that, that uh, they've, uh, they've not been able to, uh, per- perhaps they've given up on God, or their heart is cold, or their love is, is mercurial, going up and down, and they just, no sense of stability of the love and the presence of God in their lives. They feel, uh, they, they believe that they have sort of given up on God. And so how can we treat that? How can we encourage them? How can we bless them? Remembering that the high priest is permanent, he always lives to make intercession. You may believe for a time that you've given up on God, but God does not give up on you. Um, Your priest is praying for you even when you can't pray. Romans 8 tells us the Spirit is praying as well with groanings too deep for words. And we have the assurance as well. This is lifted right out of Psalm 110, that God never lies. Notice how he introduces these phrases about this Melchizedekian priest. The Lord has sworn he will never change his mind. You are a priest forever, Messiah. You are a priest, an effective and, and permanent priest forever. The Lord has sworn, he has taken an oath because of your priest's indestructible life. He'll save you from now into eternity. I want to develop some points of application for this. And to set this up, I'd like to suggest that we can take from this declaration of Christ as the effective high priest and Christ as the King. We can uh, depend on Him for spiritual and emotional stability in our current culture of fear. In our current culture of fear. If you read the newspapers, if you talk to people about what's going on around us, you will hear of people who are alarmed at at what is uh, described as as climate change. And and it uh, it, it is going to swamp us all. There are people who are speaking about the political extremes and and with fear on both ends and what, what is going to become of us. There are people who are afraid of COVID. There are people who are afraid of COVID vaccinations. And we think, what is going on? It is a, it is a world of fear. Um, British philosopher Bertrand Russell, uh, who, who wrote uh, an, F, an address, an essay in 1927, entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And he is... He is developing the idea that atheism will deliver us from fear. Once we get rid of of God talk and religion, then people will finally be able to be free of fear. Why I am not a Christian. A a, a a couple of paragraphs from this this essay. Um, Religion is based, I think, primarily and mainly upon fear. 
It is partly the terror of the unknown and partly the wish to feel that you had a kind of older brother who will stand by you in all your troubles and disputes. Fear is the basis of the whole thing. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. Fear is the parent of cruelty, and therefore it is no wonder if cruelty and religion have gone hand in hand. Science can help us get over this craven fear in which mankind has lived for so many generations. Science can teach us, and I think our own hearts can teach us, no longer to look around for imaginary supports, no longer to invent allies in the sky, but rather to look to our own efforts here below to make this world a fit place to live in. Get rid of religion and get rid of a a belief in God and people will be delivered from fear. And yet fear grows all around us. And the biblical response, based on a passage like what we've seen and looked at tonight, is Holy Spirit, increase our fear of the Lord. Deliver us from fear by increasing in us the fear of the Lord. Now, I've said recently that this is not, this fear of the Lord is not the same thing as being afraid of God. In fact, the Messiah is described in Isaiah chapter 11 as someone who is growing in the spirit and in the fear and knowledge of God. That's Jesus. That's a healthy fear growing in the knowledge and the spirit of God. We know that there is a fear that perfect love casts out. That is the fear of punishment that has been dealt with on the cross. So we're not talking about being afraid of God. Neither are we just settling for reverence and awe. That's somehow and often times how the fear of the Lord is described in sermons and in books. Well, the fear of the Lord means at basic, at heart, growing in the awe and reverence of God. We need to go beyond that. Beyond awe and reverence. One of the the primary uh, Hebrew words that uh, is behind the word fear of the Lord in our our Bibles uh, really contains the notion of trembling before God. And I think that's a great place to start. Fear God in such a way that you tremble before him. You tremble at his perfections, at his wonder, at him as king and him as priest. Let's take a look at how the the scripture teaches this in Psalm 130. We're, we're going to, we're, we're, we pray that we will um, grow in the fear of God and that we will tremble before him, listen to this, in the area of the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 130. We are to grow in the fear of the Lord as we more thoroughly grasp and firmly grasp the reality and the beauty of forgiveness. This is hardly being afraid. 
it is trembling in wonder at what God has done for us. Look with me at Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, you don't mark iniquities, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Let me grasp the forgiveness of sins so I tremble before you properly, amazed, marveling that you don't mark iniquities. So why am I marking my own? You've, you've done a mighty and wonderful thing. We're trembling in amazement and thanksgiving. Flip over with me to see one more application of this in Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, verse 6. And let me read that. By steadfast love and faithfulness, we're in that same realm of, of, of forgiveness of sins, that by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for And by the fear of the Lord, not only do we know the forgiveness of sins, but by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. You see how this this fear of the Lord that causes us to turn away from evil is extending really the idea of the first line of this verse. And it is a consequence that, that fear causes you to tremble. Fear causes you to turn away from evil. It's more than awe. It's more than reverence. There's, there's a, a trembling amazement at mercy that I, I want more than anything to honor this one who has died for me and who lives for, for me and intercedes for me. I tremble before the prince, before the, before the priest, for he has forgiven my sins. Fear God and tremble before him because of the forgiveness of sins. The second thing, let's fear King Jesus who holds Yahweh's scepter. Verse 2 of Psalm 110. Fear King Jesus who holds Yahweh's scepter. There, there are many things, as I've said, that are going on in this world that is creating a culture of fear. The severity of the storm that we endured this past week is, is one of them. And there are people who, who read the metrics of the amount of rain that fell in, in a certain period of time, are convinced that a significant change in weather pattern has occurred. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I don't know that. What's, what I'm ta- talking about, though, is the fear with which people discuss these things. Either dismissal entirely which may not be the wisest thing to do, I don't know. Or, what I'm talking about now, though, is the fear of people who are, who are undergoing certain, certain difficulties and difficulties of, with, with the change in the climate. Remember, even the climate is Jesus' footstool. Even the climate is Jesus' footstool. We do not give in to fear. I, I love this line from, uh, from, from Psalm 112. The righteous man is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. He'll not be afraid because his fear is rooted in God, in the reigning Christ. 
So we do not need to fear anything. Our hearts do not need to be afraid of bad news. Because our Lord is in heaven, ruling with the iron scepter. We fear King Jesus, who holds Yahweh's scepter. And and finally, we fear King Jesus, who will return. These are the last three verses of Psalm 110. That, uh, that the Lord uh, the Lord will return and it will be a, a horrific day. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs, leaders, over the wide earth. And he comes in the memory of Gideon, appearing weak with just 300. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We fear King Jesus, who will return. But we fear in two different ways, if we know him or if we don't. From Revelation, um, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. The apostle says, fear God, the hour is come. The hour of judgment has come. But listen to what it goes on to say, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs in it. That is a trembling fear. <laughs> that, that is a delight in, in the coming king. We tremble for ourselves if we are hidden in Christ and covered by the blood of the Lamb. We fear Him in adoration and worship and praise because He's finally come. We will fear Him in that way, trembling. And yet, and I want to close with this thought, we need to tremble now also for others who are outside of Christ. Family members and friends. People in our own houses, certainly in our own families, certainly in our own neighborhoods. And even as I'm saying, as you can see their faces. Pray for compassion for them. Fear. Horrified at what they will face at Jesus' return. Pray for compassion. And then even now, as we pray, um, what will you do this week for that neighbor or for that relative? How will you point him to the Lord? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we call out to Father, Son, and Spirit, and we say, um, bring us into the knowledge of God in such a way that we fear, that we tremble. That we marvel at mercy. So much so that we are committed to good works. 
out of love for our Savior. I pray that you would deepen within each person here fear in you, fear of you. You are the King. You are the Priest. And we ask that you would enable us, even in the week ahead, uh, to be pointers to Jesus. And we ask this in his name.